I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. This May saw the trial of voter ID systems in certain areas for the local elections. The scheme was controversial from inception, so why did the government press ahead with it? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope and I'm joined by Alison McGovern, Hannah Shaw and today's guest Darren Hughes, Chief Executive of the Electoral Reform Society. The democratic fallout of 2016's EU referendum is enormous and while pressure may be building for a people's vote on the final deal, we still have a lot of questions about the way that the last one was carried out. So in terms of Facebook algorithms and Russian bots, what, what kind of things are we learning at the moment, Alison? Well, um, last week we had the Electoral Commission's report on the activities of Facebook and Facebook actually got quite a large fine. I think I'm right in saying it's half a million quid which is no small fry. I mean, obviously to a global multinational like Facebook, I'm sure they can afford it. You know, I don't think they're going to be like doing a whip round in the office. <laughs> but that's not really the point. The point is, firstly, that's the biggest fine. I think the Electoral Commission has the ability to, to levy. So they might have given a bigger fine mm. if they could have. The second point is, it's actually what it says about Facebook's activities. And I think that we have seen Facebook acting to be involved in elections for some time now you know not to not to blame facebook or any other media organization for this but the legislation seems to be out of date as far as i can see i think we probably urgently need parliament to have a look at it but, but as relates to brexit all the time we seem to be learning quite a lot more about what actually happened in the referendum i feel like you know nobody wants to be undemocratic about it and say that you know, that it, it, it wasn't a fair result. But the more and more I personally learn about what happened in that referendum, the more uncertain I feel about that position. Darren, what's your view on these kind of things? Do you, th- do you get a sense that these revelations are kind of eroding people's trust in the way that we carry out elections in this country? I think there's a very real risk of that. And I think this highlights why it's important to have good regulation about activity, mm-hmm. because we overall think that voting is a very positive, exciting, democratic thing to do. So you've got to protect that. And I think wherever there is actions that undermine these things, you've got to look at the rule book again. 
uh, most of the the rules of the game were written around the year 2000, uh, and we're in a we're in a vastly different world uh, from from then. So the the rules really aren't fit for purpose now. And I think they're nearly 20 years out of date. Basically, is what we're saying. That, that's right. And yeah. you, you think of it. Uh, I think one of the interesting things is that campaigning used to be about stopping the other person spending more money than you, because the idea was, well, if they've got more money, they'll get more votes. And that, that will always be true to an extent. But some of the things that you can do now are extraordinarily cheap. Yeah. And so the issue is no longer saying, well, the money will sort it out. It's about activity and behavior and ethics. And I think those things aren't caught in, in, in the current law and, and need to be, which is why you've got the Information Commissioner doing all this work, the Electoral Commission, uh, individual whistleblowers. There's a lot of people who I think feel uneasy. Uh, and, and the best way to resolve that rather than cast blame to one side or the other is, is just to make sure the rules are up to date and then rigorously enforce them. So has there not been any kind of updates to these rules in the past 18 years? Some, but... Because, because but, I mean, if, if we look at Facebook, for instance, that was what invented around 2005. Yeah, but the bedrock is PPERA, Political Parties and Electoral Referendums, Referendums Act. Act. <laughs> and yeah, it's it was designed for a different era. Mm. You know, actually in this country, we have long, you know, heavily regulated and for the most part outlawed political broadcasting on mm. television so you can't buy advertising as people do in the u.s but the fact is most people are getting their media through, through completely different means now so i i think that parliament's got to look at it even the state-funded the, the political party broadcasts that go on uh, on the television most people who watch those now watch them online wow <laughs> so right. even, even the even the the original platform that was provided is, is no longer reaching the number of of people now, you could say this is a good thing or a bad thing, and then there's there is a there's pretty obvious examples of bad behaviour, but that just means bringing the laws up to date. And I think the fact that the fine was the maximum that tells you a huge amount about how concerned they were, because normally you set fines in a range, and the the highest number is the maximum is to try and scare people off. But when a case is bought, it's normally a lot lower than that, mitigating factors, etc. Mm. But here they just went for the jugular and said you're paying the whole lot. Uh, and I think that if uh, Alison's right, if it was if it was a higher possibility, they would have got more. And at the same time, Facebook are out advertising, telling us what they're doing about it all, uh, and every possible publication going. So I, think I feel this like is I've seen truths. those Facebook adverts like everywhere around me. Haven't you, Hannah? This weekend, out and about. I, I was just... watching the football and I saw one saying Facebook's here for friends, which and not for party political broadcasting. Clearly, which is <laughs> yeah, not true. I think what's really interesting about this, though is I think it shines perhaps slightly ironically a light on how important the European Union or how important multinational organisations are to the protection of our data. I read somewhere that if Facebook had been taken to court under GDPR legislation, that after that they could have been fined up to 5% of their total turnover, which wow. is significantly larger than the half a million that they were fined by wow. the electoral commission and i think so there's a touch of irony there to see that a big multinational organization really should be the solution to limiting the power of some of these media companies to interfere in our political life it's amazing that people were against, were in favor of brexit <laughs> <laughs> i can't imagine why but so what was it that facebook did to have broken the rules was it just about the way that they kind of protected people's data or, or what was it that that had gave them this fine, essentially. Well, I think that the latest example is that, that they weren't re internally regulating the apps that they were allowing onto their own platform. So right. so people were signing up for one thing and 
uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person who hasn't read every line of terms and conditions that uh, before you press OK or agree. <laughs> and, 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 and embedded in that was the ability for them to look at lots of other things about your account uh, and then to package up that uh, about the type of voter you were and mm. then feed that into some of these campaigns. So I, I think it's fine if people want to give away all their data. That's fine. But they've got to knowingly do it and people have got to be honest about why they're collecting it because in these examples uh, the, the, the main purpose of the app was not exactly what they said it was by a by long margin and I think that's what's really kicked off the criticism. Yeah I think what's even more nefarious about this I'm not sure if it's illegal or not in that there was a setting a while ago that not only were you signing up to share all your own data but also allowing apps to gain access to your friends data mm. and of course on this is publicly available Facebook data but they haven't consented to providing mm. their personal data where they live, their demographic information, some app, you know, a quiz about what kind of lemon are you, and you might be very happy <laughs> to do that. I think we probably need to take a short break just there. Apologies about the bell in the background there. But next, we'll be talking about the impact of photo ID. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Voter ID was trialled in the UK in some places during this year's local elections. Now, Darren, can you explain what voter ID is? Because I do think a lot of people listening might confuse it with uh, the kind of stuff that you do when you're out door knocking for the Labour Party. Right. Well, it's slightly broader than uh, Labour Party activity. <laughs> and and what it is, is, is for voters who are on the electoral register mm. being required to produce some form of identification to prove they are who they say they are before their ballot paper is issued to them. And in May 2018, there were five areas um, basically in the south of England uh, that trialled uh, trialed this uh, approach where people wouldn't be given a vote unless they complied with the with the rules. And there were different rules in each area, but the principle was the routine of simply arriving at your polling station and giving your name uh, was, was replaced with uh, some more onerous provisions for voters. Does this mean it has to be photographic ID or would a debit card do or... Well, this is what the trial was about, trying to work out different forms and what, mm. was, what, what was the most useful. And so all, all of them had slightly different uh, approaches, ranging from something photographic uh, issued by the government through to um, some people were talking about a, a utility bill. Yeah, or yeah. A, uh, so 
or a polling card that gets sent by the by the local authorities. So there's been different types of them trialed, but but the the point was you had to take something in addition. You couldn't either if you didn't have it or you'd forgotten it, you you wouldn't be able to vote on that day. Why was it trialed? Why did the government feel like they have to bring it in? Well, it goes back to a report by uh, Eric Pickles, the former local mm. government sec- secretary, uh, who claimed that there was a lot of voter fraud taking place and the only way to fix it was to have voters arriving with identification. Now, that, that's not borne out by any facts or evidence <laughs> or numbers, but th- this was what he proposed. And so these five trials took place and now the Electoral Commission is reviewing them to decide what to do next year. And it mm. looks as though they'll try some more trials uh, and, and, and polling during 2019. Do you think that voter fraud is, you said there isn't much evidence, but like, does it does it take place? Is in, in Britain, is there much fraud? Well, there's no evidence that, that there is. So 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 on the one hand, you'd say, well, what, what kind of system will you just rock up and say your name and get given the voting paper? There must be lots and lots of fraud. But in actual fact, in, in the 45 million votes cast in 2017 at the general election, there were only 28 allegations where, where, where somebody said that was not the person they said they were. And, and that that resulted in one person being convicted out of 45 million votes. So you know, anything higher than zero is bad, but but one we don't think justifies putting the entire voting population through uh, an exercise which might create barriers. And um, do you think that's why the government want to do this? I mean, is it just cynical Labour MP of me to think, well, this is just about making life difficult for people who want to vote? Well, we think that it's it's definitely a solution in search of a problem, um, because it's not uh, evidence based uh, at, at all. I mean, look, look, this is one of these things that that sounds on first hearing to be no problem. You've got mm. to go and pick up a parcel from the post office. They ask you for ID. The point the point being, if you forget your ID, the parcel's still there the next day. The election won't wait for you. But more than that, uh, when you don't have uh, tens of thousands of examples of people who go and vote in the afternoon, only to find someone who's used their name in the morning, and then they quietly accept that. They don't rush to Twitter or Facebook or to their local media. They say, oh, fair enough, someone stole my vote, I'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> but this doesn't happen, right? So, And at the election, we had so many seats that were decided by such tiny margins, and there's no suggestion that fraud was the outcome. So, so you do have to look, I believe, sadly, you have to look at what the motivation really is for this, mm. because with only 28 allegations and one conviction out of 45 million votes, it, it, it does seem over the top if the real motivation is is uh, to try and stop voter fraud. So what, what kind of issues were raised in advance? Because I definitely heard that voter ID was a, a problem before the trials took place. What what kind of concerns were raised with the government ahead of this? Well, qu- quite a number. So the, the Electoral Reform Society headed up a, a, a coalition of about 45 uh, civil society organisations that were worried about this, and that, that ranged uh, people who represent communities of, uh, of people, people who represent geographic areas, people who represent age demographics, all these things where people could say, look, we advocate and speak on behalf of people who already face a lot of barriers accessing services and activities and, and voting, etc. Please don't put up more uh, barriers for people. And, 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 the, and the, uh, the, the Cabinet Office just don't appear to have run an Equalities Act uh, assessment over the top of this. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of thought about how difficult this could be. And even the five trial areas they chose weren't representative of the UK population, well, the British population. And so uh, the, the, this is all you know, deep, deeply worrying about the implementation. Also, you start to worry about people thinking, oh, I've forgotten it, so I won't bother showing up. I don't have it. Uh, millions upon millions of people don't have 
have a driver's license or passport. That's really hard for decision makers to understand because they always have both. That's right. And, you know, you don't need to be an equalities genius to work out who the people are who are less likely to have a passport and a or, and or a driving license. I mean, it's obvious, isn't mm, it? It's precisely. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a real problem, isn't it? I think what really struck me about the voter ID trial during the elections, obviously we had the Winross scandal shortly afterwards, but the sort of intersection of that and the immigration detention issue and the hostile environment and actually the fact that the people who are most likely not to have these papers are people who are already not likely to engage in the political process. Um, you know, at twice the rate of white British people. And if you put another barrier in their way, one, they find it so difficult to make it to the polls anyway, them actually trying to gain the form of ID that they would need. So whether it's applying for a passport or a driver's license or another form of ID that they would require could potentially put some of these people's immigration status at risk. And they don't know. And I think now looking back on it after Windrush and after the whole hostile environment scandal, I can't see anyone rushing to say, oh, I really, really want to update my ID, even if they are in the country legally, because there's been such this aura of hostility and fear created around immigration status. I, mm. I think that's right. Also, you know, it, it's, it always strikes me how much when people who don't engage in the practice of elections ask me about this, how much you have to just tell people like it's really basic, ordinary things that stop people from voting, like that they work shifts, mm. Mm. like that they have a caring responsibility that like if you care for your nan and like for whatever reason you're busy with that during the period that you otherwise won't be able, able and available to vote, like unless you've signed up for a postal vote beforehand, like there's no way around it, you know, there's loads of just really practical stuff that stops people voting, which is why from the point of view of um, engaging in elections is why you know you'd spend loads of time like making sure people are reminded of when the day is mm. that they're reminded that if they can't do it that day they need a postal vote and I think I agree with Darren you know on the face of it without further evidence of fraud you have to suspect that this is just rocks in the road mm. for the kind of people who might find it challenging to vote. So I've never I, I, I'm sorry, every single time I've been out on uh, on the doors on polling day which is quite a few times now I've always had someone who said, oh, I was going to vote, but I don't know where my polling card is, which obviously you don't need your polling card to actually cast your vote. And, and so actually the, the level of knowledge around what barriers are in place for you to be able to cast your vote anyway is, you know, is quite low. And if you start adding barriers on top of that, then there will be more people who are just put off and unless someone is knocking on their door and going, actually, you can vote. Then yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, only, only two thirds of people vote as it is now already. Mm. You know, that, that should worry us. We've got millions of people missing from the electoral register because they were caught up in the change to individual electoral registration. Yeah, or they, that's another they thing. They haven't been that's found. So, so what, what you really want is to try and make all of this as easy as possible at yeah. every step, being able to register on the day. We can do this. This is all possible now. Mm to be able to do why do we have such an antiquated system where we instruct somebody exactly where they have to go to vote and if it doesn't suit them because as yeah. Alison said about caring responsibilities or they're called into work or something then they can't can't get off to vote and I think we've got a we've got a system that's developed through tradition to suit the people who kind of run politics because <laughs> they want to find out the result mm -hmm. on the night and they want this and they want that but actually we should be trying to make it easier for people to vote and it just feels like this 
this was an attempt to put up barriers. So, for example, in the five areas that ran the trial, there hadn't been a single allegation, not, not, much less a conviction, not a single allegation in the 10 years before uh, the vote. And yet in those areas, 340 people were denied a vote on the day. So in order wow. to solve a mythical problem, 340 people couldn't vote in those five areas of England uh, in the local elections. And you've got to step back and say, where is the great democratic joy in that? You know, that doesn't exist. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's a big problem. And in a local election, I mean, even more than we had some very close margins in 2017 general election. But in a local election, we might win or lose a seat by 10 or 20 votes um, either time. So it can be it can be absolutely crucial. And people people do once they learn about voting they it does tend to be habitual mm. so if you stop someone from voting once then you're breaking that habit which is a really really bad thing i mean i just know as connor says how much you know we have to all the time correct misapprehensions about voting you know people think you might need id already or that you need your polling card or that you know, it, that you have to register each time or whatever. So the idea that we change those rules, to me, that would be a massive problem because we would then have to spend a lot of time informing people about mm. the change, which I can imagine people had to do in those areas. Of course, and and, and now we've got more people denied a vote than, than there ever was accused of doing fraud. So so um, in terms of, you know, no one's sticking up for fraud. That's a terrible injustice. Uh, and, and, and personation is a criminal offence already. But now we've got a new category of injustice, which is the, which are those people who arrived to vote, wanted to do their democratic duty. And, and, and elections, which a lot of voters see as fairly low order, you know, mm-hmm. English local elections, you know, and, and yet they, um, they, they, they missed out. So three, 340 is actually quite a high number given that it was a, a local election, as you say, and, uh, you know, um, turnout has been rising in general elections for the past three elections on the run. Is there a sense, if it was rolled out nationwide, how big an effect that might have on turnout? Well, I, I think it would. I just mm. I just think instinctively you, you'll have people who, uh, you know, who are totally entitled to be on the electoral register, but then they might have gone out for a run in the morning and called in to vote, don't have their correct ID with them, and then they're either not able to or not motivated to return later in the day. I think there's so many unintended consequences outside of all of the huge equalities issues we've mentioned. You know, there's another category of people whose whose lives just mean that if they they'll go once, if it's not able, they're not able to do it, they're lost for the day. And I just think uh, that that's got to have an effect. I mean, it's, put it the other way, it's hard to see how it would boost turnout mm. uh, for somebody saying, oh, I've been waiting to vote with my passport all these years, I'll go down now to my polling station. I remember the first time I was elected as a local councillor and the uh, election previously, the turnout had been 29%. So only a third of people voted and we got it up to 41%. We were absolutely thrilled, you know, because <laughs> like in a local election where, you know, people kind of overall felt like they knew what the the result was going to be. And also it has to be said in certain elections that aren't covered by the media as much so by the television and the radio, Mm. it's turnout can actually be really difficult because a lot of people just forget Mm. that it's polling day. So, you know, I was really proud of that 41%. And it just, it's absolutely, absolutely devastating that it might get harder. So I guess my thought is how can we, how can we stop this? experiment from becoming more widespread 
Well, I think that there's, there's two ways. One is that organisations like ours who are non-partisan, when we work with lots of other non-partisan organisations, are raising these issues on behalf of the citizens that we represent. But at the political level, your, your colleague Kat Smith is the Shadow Minister for Voter Engagement, has been exceptionally active on this and has been giving the uh, government minister, Chloe Smith, a, a, a really hard time on it. And the government are very Good dismissive of these concerns. The government are, are, are aggressively dismissive uh, of it in a, in a way that's really surprised me. And that's why I think there is the possibility of another agenda at play. There's a real sense of an Americanization here. These are the sort of uh, tactics that have been used by mm. the Republicans in the United States. And uh, there's plenty of evidence coming out that that does have a suppression uh, effect and it's an attack on on, on the Voting Voter Rights Act of of the 1960s. Hannah, what is your sense about um, how this might affect whether young people vote? Because obviously we we had some rise in the number of young people voting at the last election. And the truth is that actually passports and stuff are quite expensive and most people I know don't really carry them about. And if you don't drive, then you're not going to have a driving licence. Do you think, are there people that you know who you think would probably just kind of not bother if they had to carry this kind of stuff around? I think that's certainly a good point. I think that, I mean, young people tend to be fairly disengaged anyway mm. from our system naturally. But I, I think there's been sort of a bit of a tide turn with the Labour Party picking up some younger members in recent years. And obviously, I think young people are starting to be engaged in the Brexit sort of negotiations a bit more via really active campaigning groups. But I think the broader point here that we haven't really touched on is one about political education. And... It's interesting to talk about whether there's there's an agenda behind sort of having these voter ID laws and whether we're becoming more Americanized. But actually what I've seen in my time, sort of I've been working with a charity supporting people in, young people in South London to become engaged in politics. And they um, ran this great campaign called Legally Black last year, uh, where they basically did film posters with themselves and they're all young, I think, minority um, teenagers in the main roles. And they put themselves up into sort of, it was in bus stops all around South London to say, why is this unusual? Has this caught your eye? Mm. Why has this caught your eye? Um, And that was one of the campaigns that came out of it. And what was really interesting is that the reason that this program exists is because these young people want to change the world that they live in and they care about social issues and they care about political issues but political education is so poor that they've got no idea how the house of parliament work how voting works or even where they can go to get any kind of recourse to the things that they want to speak about um and i think that's a much broader problem and from what i've seen i don't want to get into conspiracy theories but (laughs) to me it feels like this is an area within the national curriculum and within schools that politicians just don't seem to care as much about political education as perhaps they should. Not all politicians, Hannah, not all <laughs> politicians. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, again, not an election that I've ever engaged in has has gone by where somebody hasn't sidled up to me on a doorstep and said in a whispered voice, just explain to me how it is that you do vote. And not like, not like who should I vote for? Like literally, what do I do on the paper? Mm. Like... That's fine because, like, that is what we are actually there for, like, you know, to explain to people um, that it's really easy to vote. And, you know, as much as to answer any questions about the politics, sometimes literally the only thing you need to do for somebody to get them to vote is to explain that you can just turn up, give your name, you'll be given a piece of paper, 
it's got the candidates and the parties and you put a cross in the box. And sometimes people knowing is as simple as that is the difference between them voting and not voting. And Hannah's absolutely right that it's sad, isn't it? Because in a world where probably the four of us are like geek central about politics, like a little bit more knowledge offered mm. to like a broader community could help people be much more interested. Finally, before we wrap up, Darren, I, I wanted to ask, as you said, like when you first hear about this kind of thing and it, it's, you know, as a crackdown on on voter fraud, it doesn't sound particularly egregious. And it's only actually when you look at the levels of voter fraud versus actually how many people might be turned away from polling stations that might be the problem. But is this something that other countries do well or in countries that do have this kind of voter ID? Is it still a problem in those countries? And and is there anything that we could really do if if people did actually care about this issue genuinely? Well, I, th- I think it depends on the on the political environment in the country in which you're talking about. So, mm. th- so there are some countries where um, voter intimidation is, is very much an issue. Being able to protect the voter often requires some sort of identification, a, yeah. a mark, or um, particularly in emerging democracies where it is a new uh, a, a way of choosing government. But I think uh, in, in other countries, in the United States, for example, it, it has certainly been used as a partisan tool by one side against the other, in the same way that the gerrymandering of boundaries has mm-hmm. been it has not been in the best interests of neighbourhoods and their representatives. It's been in the interests of parties, and I think it's a, it's a dangerous uh, path to go down because so many of the laws in the UK uh, are based on uh, trust and respect and, and and honesty, and and they've and they've worked, and uh, and the and the evidence here in the voter ID example backs that up. So I, I think that. Um, Really, rather than looking abroad, uh, the the government should be looking closer to home and and trusting British voters. I'd completely forgotten about the uh, constituency boundary change. Oh, <laughs> I mean, we could just have a whole other episode of the podcast Is that still just going on? on that. Well, they keep sort of like waving the boundaries order, you know, like whenever there looks like a rebellion or something, they like keep waving it behind the speaker's chair. Not literally, listeners. That was a metaphorical <laughs> waving. It, it keeps raising its raising its head and. Uh, and, you know, it is an interesting one, actually, that the current government's proposal is to reduce the number of members of parliament to 600. Now, this sounds like special pleading from our member of parliament. <laughs> but a mem- a, a mem- Save our jobs. <laughs> <laughs> but a member of my constituency, a wonderful human named Mike Sleeth, actually looked back in history at how many constituents MPs had represented over time in Britain and you won't be surprised to know that we now represent more constituents than we've ever represented mm. before because the number of MPs has remained fairly constant and the population hasn't. And you have to see this all of a part. It's like, why would you want... I mean, you know, I'm not particularly arguing that we should raise the number of members of parliament, but why would you want to reduce it by 50? Um, it seems only that you might want to do that to try and make people who live in densely populated areas have less effective members of parliament. And again... Not to be, as Hannah said, a conspiracy theorist about these things. <laughs> but what do we think that's about, folks? Mm. Still, at least the Tories now seem on board with the uh, House of Lords reform. That's exciting. And the Daily Mail. Which, uh, yeah. I, I almost felt sorry for Nick Clegg. He must have been wondering where they were six years ago. When he tried <laughs> to Don't feel sorry for Nick Clegg. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Darren, thank you so much for, for joining us today to chat about that. That's really great. And um, next we'll have the political pub quiz question. Every week we ask a political pub quiz question that is then answered for you on Friday's show. This week my question is slightly specific 
But uh, it did do the rounds on Twitter earlier this week. So I'm hoping that people might have picked it up on there. Because Piers Morgan obviously interviewed US President Donald Trump this week. And in the press release sent out from Good Morning Britain about the interview, how many of the 30 quotes included in that press release were from Piers Morgan? Hmm, I wonder. (laughs) Send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or tweet us at Progress Online and you could win a much coveted Progress mug. (laughs) We're going to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Darren Hughes joining us today. Do send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review. And we'll respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate. Thanks for listening. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast mm-hmm.